0: Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. We are your hosts, Mike and Tom Greeley of the Newmark Capital Markets Platform, and we're thrilled to be kicking off, after a great holiday season, the first in a string of really great guests for our series here. A little bit about today's guest,
1: Rachel Diller, who we are very, very excited about. Rachel serves as Senior Managing Director and Co-Chief Investment Officer for Bridge, and in particular, their Workforce and Affordable Housing Fund. Bridge is a diversified real estate private equity investor with $50 billion in assets under management, comprised of 56,000 apartment units and nearly 12 million square feet of logistics space. Rachel has over 20 years of experience in real estate and finance and has capitalized more than 120 real estate projects worth $3.6 billion in 23 different states. Rachel joined Bridge from Urban View Capital, a specialist real estate fund manager dedicated to sustainable and impact investing. Prior to that, she was a managing director at Goldman Sachs and the firm's Urban Investment Group, a principal investing platform that deploys capital to underserved domestic urban markets. Rachel began her career in real estate on the public side as a New York City Urban Fellow developing transitional housing projects for New York's Department of Homeless Services, where she was a director of facility planning and development. This foundation on the public side has informed much of Rachel's approach and is something that you'll hear a lot about today in our conversation. Outside of Bridge, Rachel serves on the board of the Corporation for Supportive Housing and is an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School, where she earned an MBA following her bachelor's in urban studies from UPenn. That's a double Ivy League scholar and a several-year stint at Goldman, for those keeping score not too shabby. Today's conversation covers all the stops along the way and really gets to the root of the challenges facing the housing industry. We were very lucky to work with Rachel and her colleagues, particularly Jared Carpenter, this past summer on the 1700-unit suburban Boston portfolio which they bought. They were an exemplary counterparty there and will be great stewards of those assets going forward. So we hope you enjoy the conversation. Rachel was an awesome guest. We, we could have talked for hours. We hope she'll come back someday and we hope you learned something. Enjoy. Welcome back to Good Dirt, conversations with leaders in real estate and beyond. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by our friend, Rachel Diller, the Senior Managing Director of Acquisitions and Co-Chief Investment Officer of Bridge Investment Group's Workforce and Affordable Housing Strategies. Rachel, thank you for joining us.
2: So glad to be here. Where Thanks are you for coming from? Me. New York? Let's see. I've been in Atlanta. I live in New York, but I've been in Atlanta and then I was up here in Boston.
1: And it's a Salt Lake-based Company,
2: yes. I spent a lot of time in Salt Lake, and not here this week. But I'll be there, stopping there next week on my way back from California. So
1: we've talked about it before, but envious of that as your headquarters location. It's one of our favorite places to visit. So you're lucky. Awesome, it's It's awesome. It's a great part of the world.
2: It is, and it's a Delta hub, which helps in our business. Oh, that does
1: help. Yeah, we're a JetBlue hub in Boston, and that's always fun. So we got to know each other a bit this past summer, working on a sizable transaction in the Greater Boston market, the suburban Boston portfolio, and. I'll give you a plug. You are an excellent counterparty, and we really enjoyed working with you and Jared on that. So thank you on behalf of Newmark and Harbor Group for a smooth transaction there.
2: Well, thank you, both of you guys. Our entrance into this market, we've been knocking on the door for a while, and I just having visited all six of the properties in the last 24 hours, we're just
1: thrilled. Man, so you're tired. You're tired. No, not tired.
2: That jazzes me up. I I love it. it.
1: That's great. Well, we love to start these interviews, and I'm sure you've listened to the few of them with the beginning. We want to go back to kind of your college days, where you went to school, where you're from, and then we'll get into the early parts of your career if we could do that. So take us back to to Penn and Columbia.
2: Great. The dark ages. <laughs> So, yeah, I grew up in the greater New York area and went to Penn with not really knowing what I wanted to do, but I was a little bit focused on kind of bleeding heart and wanted to change the world and somehow found myself at a Penn and in West Philadelphia. And so in an urban setting, not having grown up in one, and I looked around and I said, okay, maybe this is my thing. These are the problems Our I'm Our father went to
1: Penn and didn't know what he wanted to do either. So okay. there's some commonality there.
2: Okay, good. Well, that's the beauty of a liberal arts education. but as is, I guess, a theme in my life, I was already fairly impatient for learning and learning hands on. And so actually, my cousin was at Penn, and she was an urban studies major. And I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. She's like, you're gonna be an urban studies major. And so I kind of always did what she said to do, and loved it because it was super interdisciplinary. And even at the undergraduate level, it was taught by a lot of adjunct professors. And so it was really hands on. And our laboratory was the city of Philadelphia. And so it was awesome. And I loved everything about it. I love studying just the intersection of all of the problems, everything from community development, affordable housing, education, et cetera. So that was my undergraduate career.
0: And at that point, you're at Penn. Penn has always been sort of a leader in balancing the campus and the urban fabric that was going on, I'm sure, when you were there. It was an interesting time in the city. But Penn... You were living in the lab, truly. So was that part of the program that you were sort of out there, sort of getting an understanding of what really goes on in the neighborhoods?
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, certainly living in West Philadelphia and feeling that tension between the West Philly community and the campus was very palpable for me. As part of the program, I mean, Penn is, you know, one of the largest landlords in the city. And it was always a tension, right, in that regard. There was also a lot going on. Mayor Rendell, then governor, he was the mayor at the time. um, There was a lot of redevelopment efforts. And there was a lot of going out into the neighborhoods and really seeing what was happening. But no question, when I got to Penn and I felt what was going on there, and I thought, well, what's the relationship here with the University of West Philadelphia? And the community, and it just kind of day to day, I really felt a lot of the challenges that the city was going through, and I really wanted to get involved.
0: Yeah, well, the, the Penn diaspora in the real estate business obviously is incredible.
2: But that's a Wharton diaspora, it,
0: it is, it is. But that thread runs through the industry a lot, and we do a lot of life science and healthcare work yeah. centered sort of around University City, and it's great because almost Every active investor and developer has someone who went to school and lived within a block or two of the site that we're talking about. So it always makes it a little bit easier on the learning curve.
1: Mike's on the medical and academic team, as we talked about, and there's a lot of crossover in Philly. We have a great team, Lizanne McGowan and Aaron Miller in Philadelphia on the residential side they cross over a lot with some of the meds and eds, because that's a really interesting city when it comes to meds and eds, the universities and how they blend with the neighborhood and become part of the neighborhoods. really, it's kind of like Boston in that way.
2: Yes, totally. And I think now when I go back to Philadelphia and I've been back to Penn a few times, Penn and Drexel used to really be separate. And now they're just totally intertwined, right? Just because of how both campuses kind of grew together. And so it's a very powerful force there. And like you said, it's kind of like Boston. It's a big city. It's cosmopolitan, but it feels small. It's a city of neighborhoods. And yeah, so there's definitely some alum. But I got to say, and we'll come back to this, but when I went back for my 20th college reunion, and at the time, I was working at Goldman Sachs, and I told people I was working at Goldman Sachs. People, they thought I had just like totally sold out. You crossed and they over. were like, "Oh my god!" Because all the people who did real estate went to Wharton. And I was going to say, "Yeah, you're not I, a I may Wharton or may person. not have hopped loogies on the on the steps <laughs> of Wharton <laughs> as I went down Locust Walk." But then they moved. Oh, they moved awesome. the main building, so maybe that was because of me. I don't know. And but then, then you then, crossed you know, over exactly, and I was like, "No, no, no! It's the good part of Goldman, and nobody bought it." Oh, yeah,
1: those Wharton people. If my friend Max Meyer from Bow Post
0: is listening then he's going to turn over. So it's I, I okay.
2: Love it. It's okay. I've known some good ones. It's
0: yeah. Right. Very so, cool. so urban studies focus. And then what were the next steps? What were you doing in internships and in the summer? And what was your first jump out yeah. after school?
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, one of the things that was most impactful for me is I had an internship I think it was the summer after a sophomore or junior year of college, working for a community development corporation called Brooklyn Ecumenical Cooperative in downtown Brooklyn. And this was at the intersection of Atlantic and Pacific. And this is before the Barclays Center. This is before all of this. So this was early 90s. It was a very different downtown Brooklyn And affordable housing is, particularly in New York and a lot of places, right, is provided at a very local level by community development corporations who get funding Mm -hmm. from nonprofits or banks. And this organization owned a lot of affordable housing and managed it as well. And so I had the opportunity to spend the summer My job, I had a lot of different jobs, but one of the jobs was actually providing training to folks who were in affordable housing about how to live in a rental apartment. And just spent a lot of time, there were a lot of brownstones, there were some three, four-story walk-ups, and just kind of was out in the community and working on the ground. And it's something that both that experience and some other experiences I had early on, which we'll talk about, kind of being on the ground understanding, whether it's from the property management perspective or the community development perspective, what's really happening. If you don't do it in your 20s, it's hard to find time later in your life, I think, to do it. Or you just kind of get more experience doing other things and then you get promoted and then you just get further away from the subject matter. And if you don't get that hands-on experience. And so the people I met and understanding what the dynamics in that community, that was really important. And I did a few things like that, but I ended up getting a fellowship working for the city of New York as my first job out of college.
1: Yeah, we want to hear about that. That's a super interesting I was a New York experience. City Urban
2: Fellow. New York City Urban Fellowship Program has been around, I think it was just the 30th. No, it's been longer than that. It's probably been around for like 40 years. And it's a program actually run out of the Department of Personnel that hires 25 recent college grads every year, right out of college, and really uses it as a recruitment tool to get young, hopefully, not in my case, but in other cases, bright talent into city government, <laughs> while everybody else is working at banks and things like that. And it's a program where you're placed in an agency. It's a boon, like it's a feather in everyone's cap if they can get a fellow. So all of the agencies put out these job descriptions trying to make them the most sexy. You can be the assistant to the commissioner of this and all of these things you get to do. And then the fellows come in and they get to choose. And so if you get at an agency, if you get a fellow, you're supposedly good. So you go and you basically work, but every Wednesday morning for three hours, you come together and they bring in people from all over the government to talk to you. So there's that kind of training component. And then you have peers, right? Mm -hmm. I had one peer who was in my agency, but I chose to work at what had been the newly created Department of Homeless Services for the city of New York.
1: Could you just give us a picture of New York at that point? This is what year and what was going on in New York City? Yeah. It's had a lot of different life cycles.
2: Yeah. So this is the early 90s, right? So all I can say is I should have bought everything I could. Have, I, I, should <laughs> have, I wish I had, had money heard that to a buy lot in something. Yeah. So real estate in terms of values was down, but I was really focused on homelessness. And back to my time as an Urban Fellow, all of the problems of urban life I mentioned it was interdisciplinary, right? But where do you begin? And you can begin lots of places. You can focus on healthcare, you can focus on education, you can do city planning. Is it about the use of land, right? And housing to me really stood out because I thought, okay, if you don't have as that as a foundation, What do you have? If you don't have somewhere safe and affordable to live, how can your kids go and learn and all those things? And so to me, it was very focused on housing and on homelessness. And in New York City, we had a very difficult homeless issue at the time. So the city shelter system, which I was part of the organization that ran the city shelter system had about 10,000 families and about eight or 9,000 single adults, right? So two different systems really, because families, a lot of them women and children, right? And then single adults, a lot of men, some crossover issues, but at the time, not as much an issue around affordability and more an issue in the singles population around mental health and substance abuse and in the families population, definitely poverty and some mental health issues.
0: I mean, in the 90s, the country is coming out of a decade of brutal drug addiction, including in New York. The crack cocaine epidemic had really swept through New York over that period of time. So it's a tall task.
1: In a lot of ways, corollaries to what we're seeing today in a lot of cities, in Boston in particular, too, there's a pretty significant homeless issue, and the drug issue is as bad as ever. So there's a lot of similarities between that period and this period, it seems like.
2: Yeah, and unfortunately, and I don't have the stats, but unfortunately, I think the shelter population has swelled even more in New York, right? And today, of course, we have issues even more so because of a lot of the migrant issues and a lot of immigration issues. But one of the things that both plagues and supports New York now and did at the time is the fact that the city of New York is under a consent decree to house people on demand within 24 hours. So I don't know the exact date. I can get it. But there was a case called Callahan versus whomever that was brought by a number of homeless advocates. I think it was was in the 80s that said basically shelter is a human right. And the city, if someone presents themselves and they don't have some place to live, the city must, and the court rules the city must provide shelter for them. So that makes sense, right? You guys right. are nodding. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. What that meant by the time I got to the city, and I was working, by the way, in basically the part of the organization that was responsible for building new shelters. So I wasn't on the social services side, kind of got to, and this is part of my career, you know, why people are homeless and a lot of the social issues we have in this country are so complicated, so intractable. And I'm a little impatient and also just. Really hard to get your head around. And I ended up gravitating towards things that were a little bit more concrete, Mm -hmm. hence the real estate, and, and eventually got to the bricks and sticks. But my job there, where I got exposure to that, was really being part of what we called facilities management and development, where we were responsible for building new shelters or finding new shelters. So if there's a swell in demand and you have to meet demand, right? I was told all the time the penalty for the city for not meeting the consent decree is the mayor would be put in jail.
1: Wow, that's codified. Correct. Wow.
2: And I should say I started in September. The fellowship program was a nine-month program. I ended up, I think, being a success from their perspective, because it's meant to recruit. I ended up staying for a total of five years before going to business school. And that's the point of the program. But I started in September of 93 at the end of the Dinkins administration. Well, his administration, turns out it ended two months later. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of the Rudy Giuliani administration. You might have heard of him. And that was an interesting time to be working for the Department of Homeless Services and being responsible for siting new shelters. I should say that City Hall had a strong opinion about where new shelters should and shouldn't be. And it was along lines that I thought were challenging. So there were certain places where we couldn't cite shelters because there was no political will for it and other places where we needed to. And you can imagine that that had long constituent right. lines. But if there's a swell in demand, real estate is, it takes some time to develop it. You can't just all of a sudden, you know, it's not an accordion. You don't solve it overnight. Correct. Yeah. So if you're doing new construction, it takes some time. But if you have a shortage, you end up having to go in and retrofit buildings. So some of the projects I worked on were new construction projects. 1801 Clinton Avenue, the first project I've ever done in the Bronx and with a not-for-profit. And it was amazing. I remember walking, you know, I got to go out, walkthroughs with the construction. And that's when I was like, okay, I can feel it. Like, that's where I got the need. Like, I was trying to save the world. And then I matching that with getting dirt under the fingernails. I was like, oh, this is my thing. Like, I love this. But there were other things where we didn't have time to build it. And so we would take basically old mental hospitals that the state had shut down in the 70s that then threw a lot of people on the street. And now we're leasing them back from the state and retrofitting them into congregate shelters. Mm -hmm. The irony of that is kind of crazy. And then in New York City, the party that owns the land isn't always the one that owns the building. Right. So we had all sorts of crazy ground leases and all sorts of crazy stuff. So it was a fascinating time. I love my public sector experience. I mean, by the time I was 25, I had like a $100 million budget and was fully responsible for building all new shelters for the city of New York. Now, if either of you were citizens of the city of New York paying taxes at that time? I'm so sorry, <laughs> because <laughs> that's you got prob- th- thrown right into it. it was yeah, the right that's person. probably not how it should have been. But that's the difference, right? So when you're in the public sector, I mean, my friends—not that I had any—but if I had any, had friends at Wharton, <laughs> yeah. they were making like Lotus Notes or something like that at yeah, like you know right. Goldman and making coffee or just you know what well, we would I was call just power. Just thinking about what we today. were doing
1: at 25, we were working hard, but we were yeah. analysts, and you were changing the world, changing the city.
2: I don't think that's the case. What I mean is that for someone who's impatient and wants to learn by doing, which I had really gotten exposure to at Penn, this is what I wanted, Yeah. right? I mean, my first review that I ever had, I was an urban fellow and I had a boss. So it was maybe six months in and I had my first formal review as a professional, right? And I'd never had one before.
1: Those are always fun. A little nerve wracking.
2: Totally. And there was kind of the, what's positive and they don't say what's negative, although maybe in the 90s they do. Now it's kind of, what can you do more of and what <laughs> could you grow about? Right. You know, something like that. And basically my opportunity for growth was – now but this is from a civil servant. Someone had been there for 20, 25 years. He wanted me to be more patient. And I sat there and I thought to myself, dude, my lack of patience is the best thing I have going for yeah. me because I'm looking around. Rewired. He's like, you know, slow yourself down. I was like, we have a crisis. There are people living on the street. And by the way, I'm told if I don't find them someplace to go, the mayor's going to jail. Right. I maybe I didn't care about that mayor at that time, (laughs) but I figured that's probably not great for my career. So,
0: but the acceleration of your own experience being hands on in these projects, getting like the ultimate crash course, it's incredible. You can fast forward those years until today. Uh, You talk about the opioid epidemic, the homeless crisis, the migrant situation. Cities across the country are doing exactly. What you were doing then today to try to get people into a housed situation quickly, because as winter approaches in Boston, we see this every year that there's this scramble. When you talk about nursing homes, mental hospitals, hotels that aren't being fully utilized, those are the places that the city. I think It's interesting.
1: I think it tells you that it's a really, really difficult thing to solve. And you have to keep chipping away at it and keep making progress and keep housing folks. But it's never going to go away. It's about more than just the housing. There's a lot more that needs to happen in order to fix that problem. So you were at the tip of the spear when you were in New York, but it's still such an issue everywhere.
0: And a cool opportunity for you, the late Tom Manino, Mayor of Boston, called it his Urban Mechanics Program. And it was a similar fellowship program. And a lot of amazing leaders in all areas of business came out of that program. How did you end up going to business school? Was that directly from your work with the city?
2: Yeah, all joking aside, there was a lot of naivete, right? When I was looking down my nose at all the people who went to Wharton, I was like, you don't need math to solve the world's problems. And I realized, actually, you need math. So when I was sitting there trying to figure out spreadsheets and sources and uses on a development project, and I was like, I know I need to know this, and I know I could probably fumble my way through it, but I kind of think I need math to solve the world's problem. I hadn't yet come to the place that I needed capitalism to help solve the problems, but that's a later chapter. You're working your way there. Yeah. And so I knew I needed math, and then I also got advice from a lot of folks I was like, yeah, yeah, I can learn math, but I really want to go to, speaking of Boston, I want to go to the Kennedy School and learn about public policy and And people looked at me and they said, listen, you are an urban studies major, which is kind of that whole thing as an undergrad, and you've worked for the city now for four years. Your public sector check. Yeah. Like, if you think that there's some intersection between public and private that's going to solve the world's problems, you better get off the public sector stink off you, go learn some math, yeah. and then you can come out and go back if you want or just have some private sector experience. So I kind of went in holding my nose like it was medicine I had to take. Mm-hmm. And I was living in New York. The thing I got engaged like my last week and I didn't want to leave New York and I applied, basically applied to Columbia. I said, I'm going to go to Columbia or bust. I went in as a J-termer. So I thought like, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here. I'm going to start in January and go straight through because you don't have an internship. And I was like, again, impatience. Mm-hmm. It sounds really impatient. <laughs> I'm urgency. We like it. Okay. I like urgency the euphemism, a it's a good word. The euphemism. <laughs> but I did have a sense of urgency and I knew that I wanted to continue to learn out in the laboratory. Although when you go back to graduate school, if you've worked for a few years, you really appreciate what I had taken for granted, which is like, I just sit here and you guys spoon feed me information yeah. as opposed to the real world where I've got to go kind of blindly figure it out. This is awesome. So I went to Columbia and turns out I'm pretty good at math. Do you guys go to business school? No, no,
0: we didn't. But turning the academic brain back on, the youngest of five in our family, our sister Megan is a law school at University of Georgia, go dogs, And she's been in the government affairs, public policy, government affairs world, Going back and turning the academic brain back on has been like a total treat for her. She's right, loving it. So, you would think setting. she's the coolest Greeley by far.
2: Yeah.
1: I, I think so too, but you would particularly.
2: Oh, good. I can't like wait to background. meet her. I can't wait we to meet We want her go. back
0: in Boston, but we're looking
1: forward we'll to spending some time with Downstairs. Down okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you went to Columbia, got through a couple of years. Yep.
2: I went in and out. And again, one of the things that was most appealing is you're in New York, right? right. And so, once you get past that first year, you have a lot of adjuncts coming in. And so, the woman who ran the program at the time, Lynn Galen, she had been at MIT for a while. She had was a Penn, MIT, Columbia. Anyway, she was and is amazing and really responsible for every job I've had since then, except for Bridge. And she had titans of industry coming in, and it was just great. And I got married on Christmas break between my third and fourth semesters, so got that done.
1: Busy. You're not wasting any time at this point. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even your vacations, you're throwing a wedding, which is a job <laughs> in itself.
2: Yeah, no. My mom said, please don't make any friends in business school because we, you know. <laughs> so,
0: the list is not is The list, yeah, oh, yeah, and I
2: didn't really. No, I made a few. And I mentioned Lynn. Lynn also is a public-private person. She wrote on the redevelopment of Times Square. She wrote a book about the redevelopment of Lower Manhattan after 9-11. And she's just been an inspiration to me. And I was actually helping her. I was one of many TAs on her book about the redevelopment of Times Square that spring and summer. And it was a whirlwind, so I took the summer off. And I was just coming basically into the city to help her on stuff. And finally, at the end of the summer, she's like, so you going to look for a job yet? And, and I was like, yeah, I think I want to go back nonprofit, public sector, etc." And she was like, I think you need to do a little private sector. She said, I'm having lunch tomorrow with the president of the related companies who was Andy and Blick before Jeff Blau at the time. And I'm going to give him your resume. Is that OK? I'm like, Okay. And he looks at my resume, sees affordable housing. He gives it to a couple of guys who were running the day-to-day of Related Capital Company, which was the financial services arm, affordable housing arm of the related companies at the time. And they were starting up a debt business. They were big on equity in the tech business. And again, I ended up what I thought was holding my nose, being like, oh, I don't want to go to the private sector. (laughs) And Lynn and other people said, yeah, okay, but you think You've learned math, but let's face it, nobody actually gave you the mouse in the group projects in business school to do Excel because you were too slow. And so you actually haven't done it. You've been riding sidecar, go and like do it. So I dropped into Related Capital.
1: And Related at the time, because everybody knows Related today as luxury apartments and condos and super high end, but their DNA is affordable housing, correct? Yeah, well, Steve Ross's
2: DNA is that, right? Right. So he was a tax accountant or tax attorney, I should know know, and kind of came up through that world. And so Related Capital was the affordable housing finance company, really a tax credit syndicator that was, when I joined, starting to do tax and bond financing, so lending. At the time, though, Stephen had already started to do, so this is in 99, do a lot of development of market rate housing and obviously mixed use. So one of my buddies from business school was in the same building, 625 Madison, on the fifth floor or maybe I was on the 5th, he was on the 10th, I can't remember, really in the development company. It was very separate, right? So there was Stephen and four partners. They called the other partners the working partners, and Stephen still owned the majority, but he was really off already. I mean, planning Columbus Circle and all right. of that. But yeah, that's the DNA of Related. And of course, Related, obviously, here in Boston, a number of places is still very big in the yeah. affordable, affordable so, business. So you
1: got your MBA at Columbia, but you really learned some of the nuts and bolts of the business at that related capital. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And affordable housing finance is kind of structured finance meets real estate because there's the whole tax structure. You've got Section 42, the tax credits. I was on the tax bond side. So we were lending... But public issuers would issue bonds and we'd buy the bonds. And they were like 17, 18-year bonds. So it was construction to perm. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it was a lot of new development. You can do tech, And if you do a substantial rehab, you could do acquisition credits. But it was a lot of bricks and sticks. And then it was a lot of structuring.
1: Yeah. I think we could spend a whole hour talking just about the LIHTC world and, yeah. and low-income housing, tax credits, and finance. But and it's book. such a
0: blind spot for so many of our yeah. listeners because it's a space that if you haven't spent time in it personally – your understanding is going to be elementary. But for you, we love these stories because we like to hear about how'd you build up this toolbox, which equipped you to go ahead and do what you did after that. And you had the academic side down. You had sort of what I think of the urban mechanic side. And then you get to related with some of the best and the brightest. And I mean, really get your chops in that side of the business. So Yeah.
2: And that was about reps, right? It was about building models. It was about hanging in the cube to all hours of the night and having colleagues who, can teach you stuff, right? Like when you work in a public sector, you get dropped in. Like I just learned by doing. I did have great bosses there and learning, but it wasn't the same thing as having peers. And so a lot of the guys that I grew up with, that related, or my closest friends, people I do oh, business so cool. with a lot of times, right? We were in the trenches together. And so I definitely learned about underwriting and diligence. I learned about financial modeling. And then I've always been on the front end of the business, right? An acquisition person, an investor. And so dropping into markets and figuring out where you want to do deals. And one of my closest friends is in the business, Steve DeFrancis, who runs Cortland. You may know Steve. Mm -hmm. And he was a developer of affordable housing in Atlanta before building Cortland and being more on the market rate side. And he got a taxes and bond allocation from the state of Georgia to develop an affordable housing deal. And you could get a list of, this is not that hard to build the business, right? You get a list of developers who got these allocations who are then gonna need someone to finance them. And I cold called him one day and he picked up the phone and I said, I saw you just got a tax on bond allocation. He was like, yep. And I was like, you're gonna need someone to buy those bonds. He's like, yep. I was like, I'm coming to Atlanta on Monday. We're gonna talk.
1: That's awesome. And we
2: did, and I think that was my first deal and that was his first deal. At Cortland's. No, this oh, is a was totally pre-Cortland. different pre courtland wow. exactly. And that's here so we cool. are a lot longer. Oh, you know, so awesome. It was great to go into different markets and learn different things. So I think you're right, Mike, like I really, that's where I threw reps, right? Kind of got my chops.
0: Yeah. What came next after related?
2: So I was there for nine years and left with a few guys that I used to work with what seemed like what was a great time, but it was in the spring of 08 and it ended up being just a few months right before Lehman went under. Mm-hmm. And so started a venture with them for a few months that quickly did didn't work out. But when the world closes a window, it opens a door, vice versa. And back to Lynn Segalen my mentor at Columbia who had sent my resume to related, she had other and has a lot of, I would say, disciples, and was having another book party. I think it was a book party, actually it was a Times Square book. And she was having a book party and she had asked a few of us to help organize it. And through that I met someone who ended up being a good friend, Alicia Glenn, who at the time was running the urban investment group at Goldman Sachs. She was then deputy mayor of the city of New York and now has her own fabulous company. But we had met through that. And so we started getting coffee every six months. And so the fateful weekend that Lehman went under in September of 08, both Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were forced, among others, to take money from the Fed window to make sure that They didn't go under as well. And in exchange for that, became banks, right? Basically, had to become bank holding companies and thus became subject to the Community Reinvestment Act, which, as you may know, requires banks and other financial institutions to invest and lend in low and moderate income areas from which they take deposits. So, this is not a regulation that Goldman had been under before, although they had this small urban investment group that Alicia was running that was really a thought project in the early O's out of the executive office at Goldman, thinking about how do we really kind of corporate social engagement. Mm -hmm. And they were putting out about $100 million of equity a year, pretty small, but mighty group, really looking at emerging neighborhoods like Harlem, like downtown Mm -hmm. Brooklyn. These places are no longer emerging, but at the time where there could be public-private partnerships and they were capitalizing developers to do kind of cool projects and so when the GFC happened and Goldman became a bank holding company, Lloyd Blankfein, who was at the helm at the time, looked around and said, we got to do all this. Like, Don't we do something like this? And Alicia and all her wisdom said, yep, we do that because at the time, a lot of the Real estate businesses, what had been Repia and things like that, were kind of on the outs because lots of organizations were saying, wait, let's get back to our knitting. What do we do? Right. Right. And a lot of people in 07, 08, right, there was some money lost in the real estate business. And so some of that was getting flushed out, I would say. Alicia raised her hand and said, wait, we do that. We do all sorts. And he said, great. You put you over here in a bank, build a business. By the way, the regulators are coming. We have to put out like a billion dollars in the next 18 months. So Coffee Clutch with her had worked out really well. And she called me and she was like, we got to do some lending and we got this tax credit stuff because they were doing private equity and mixed finance deals. They weren't doing what banks have to do a lot of in order to do CRA, which is more credit like products. And she said, you got to come help me do this. And so I did. So you, were, awesome. you
1: went from a bleeding heart undergrad to a public servant to about as far from a public servant as you can get with Goldman Sachs, although you were at Goldman doing what you love and making a difference and investing in projects that still had that theme, which seems like it's carried through. And and I know your next step continues, but it's really interesting. You went to the sophisticated Wall Street firm, but you were still doing what you cared about and still touching that housing that means so much to you, which is really cool. Really interesting.
2: I feel so lucky. And at a time where we had a lot of capital that we had to put out and I was like, well, twist my arm. Let's do it. Rob,
0: Rob Griffin, who runs our team, always says, you create your own luck. I think you look back, it's a good lesson for all of us, no matter where you are in your career or life, the the network and the relationships you had built up to that point put you in a position where you got that phone call. There weren't a lot of great phone calls being received in 2008. It was such a choppy time. And to get a phone call saying, hey, we have a lot of capital to deploy in a sector that you know really well, get over here. Um, yeah, that was oh, a very short the list stars of people getting, getting that call, but you would put yourself in that spot. You well, know, I feel grateful
2: for that relationship. And I think when you do things in your life that you're passionate about, and it doesn't have to be about civil service, it can be whatever it is, you attract yourself to other people who have that feeling. And when you share that passion with people, right, there's a connection there. And then right. people want to be, and there's no question that that team that I joined and then we continued to build over the next six years at Goldman, we're aligned completely and sharing passion about making change, about public-private partnerships, about neighborhood redevelopment, Mm -hmm. about being catalytic, about thinking out of the box. I remember I had a conversation with a great guy who was running the bank when they first became a bank in an interview, because Alicia, she's like, I'm going to hire you, but you're going to have to meet like 40 people, but I'm still going to hire you and it's going to take a few months, but just meet them and make them think you don't know if you're going to get the job. I'm like, OK. And one of the conversations so I had with this guy at the bank, he's like, so what other banks are you thinking of going to in a community development institution? I said, I wouldn't be caught dead at a bank doing CRA. Right now, that was my naivety. I know a lot of people there doing great things. But I said, I'm coming here because it's Goldman Sachs. I thought we're going to do this differently. And he was like, yeah, we are. And so I think ultimately, right, being in a bank is and especially after the GFC, I mean, it's not easy and it's not easy, certainly not easy to be a principal investor in a bank because the capital charges alone will kill you, not to mention all the rest of it. But one of the many amazing things about Goldman is truly the smartest people. People say, oh, they're smart. I mean, really smart people and really wanting to do things out of the box and push the envelope. And so there's kind of a band of people there that's grown over time and attracted and retained some really amazing folks who are able to kind of build that business within Goldman. At the same time as Goldman was building a bank and trying to figure out how to be a bank, how do you take an investment bank that is not regulated as much, right, and is known to be all about growth and really just innovative and then put them in a bank where you've got all of these regulators. And you'll probably remember there was something about an evil squid at the time. And, you know, Goldman didn't have a great reputation. And here we are saying, no, but we're the good part of Goldman and we're going to come and redevelop your community. And so it was an interesting time to be doing that work.
1: Sounds like a super interesting time to be in the business period, but at Goldman Sachs as well. And you went from there, I think you were there five or six years. And then you took the plunge. And it's something we talk about in a lot of these conversations, that moment where you said, "Okay, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to build something. When did that happen? How did that come about? Tell us a little bit about that transition and striking out for your first venture urban view on your own.
2: I'm the daughter of an entrepreneur. My dad built and ran his own business. But I think I didn't always have this feeling like I have to do it where I'm the guy, right? Like it's mine because I'm kind of a joiner and I like to collaborate. And frankly, when I think about my time, at related when I joined a business that was mostly equity and helped build the debt business, right? And then we bought some agency lenders. We bought Fannie and Freddie lenders. We put those together. And I did a lot of building and creating new businesses within businesses at related. And in some ways, that's what I was doing at Goldman as well, right? Like we had this and then we had to, it wasn't just doing deals, we were also building a business. So you were
1: still entrepreneurial in those larger exactly. settings. Exactly. And so
2: I never felt like I had to do it on my own. At that moment though, so in 2015, I really saw a lot of what was happening in. A a lot of secondary cities outside of the sexy six and thought, I really want to be investing in some of these places that are really changing. And because of Goldman's mandate with respect to CRA at the time, it was mandated to invest or needing to invest in New York, actually in Salt Lake City, as it turns out, and a few other places. But it was less around because of what we were doing about looking where in the country do you want to invest? It was like, go figure out the best investments you can do here. And so while in the beginning, it was great because we had all this capital and we were building this business, the business had kind of gotten to a more mature level. It's continued to grow from there. But I really just wanted to Not invest where regulators told me to invest, but I wanted to invest where I saw exciting things happening and really felt that between that and the fact that, again, it's really hard in a regulated environment to do principal balance sheet investing because it just doesn't make sense for the firm above and beyond what you need to do from a regulatory standpoint, I thought it was time to go and do something else. And at the time, people were starting to talk a lot about impact investors and people wanting to align their capital and their wallets with their values. And I thought, well, I don't really need, you know, and I couldn't take a track record from Goldman Sachs. I was like, I don't need a track record. People will just be excited about this and no one else is doing it. And there was some truth to that. So I stepped out and created Urban View Capital and was fortunate enough to have a small fund, $25 $25 million backed by a good friend in the business and a developer client, a big developer, um, Ron Mollis, who's in New York and has done a lot of affordable housing and built a wonderful company. And so he backed me and Prudential also backed me and together we did a small fund. And I was able to, and the thesis was sustainable real estate investment platform, joint venturing with local development sponsors to provide kind of more middle market checks, 7 to $10 million of equity and really focus on public-private partnerships. And it was great. I loved it. I loved getting to do the deals I wanted to do. And again, I'm building a business from scratch, right? All the fund management stuff. I was able to attract very early on a friend of mine who had just had dinner with the other night in Atlanta, a great, great guy, Michael Sedin, who came on board and helped me build the business from there. And it was great to build a business. It was great to attract capital and then get to go and structure and do these deals. And the biggest challenge in the fund management business, as we know, is scale. You can't be small in the fund management business. You have to be able to scale. And if you're only doing development deals, that's a really long life cycle to get a track record.
0: For someone who lives urgently. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> that's, I'm going to get a bumper sticker to live urgently. I'll give you credit for it. So, yeah, so we are actually able to do a really cool TOD project on a MARTA site in Atlanta with a wonderful sponsor and Columbia Ventures, a public private partnership, able to do a similar type deal in San Antonio with the NRP group using people talk about these PFC structures yep. in Texas. This was way back in the day before they got all hip, but you know again really using whether it's cheaper land or city land or a tax abatement to make projects work that wouldn't otherwise work. Mm-hmm. And each of those projects, those public-private partnerships, they're like a hand-knit sweater, right? right. They're like a snowflake. And so it's hard to do at scale anyway, right. right? But that was really satisfying for me. And I also did a project with the guy who I shared a cube with at Related, who became a big and impactful developer. My really good friend, Matt Schwartz, from the domain companies. So I did a deal with him in New Orleans where he had spread to. So I was able to do a lot of things that I wanted to do in the cities that I was excited about.
0: So you're sort of allocating capital on behalf of this fund of two. Uh And they backed you on the platform, too, to give you some running space to create this new business. And you sort of took all those lessons you had learned over the years. And these are people we always say, like, we got to ban the word placemaking or game changing. But these, at that time, trans-oriented development in neighborhoods that needed it, it's transformative. And it must be satisfying. We say this to people who are developers who come on to do these interviews, people want to go in the real estate business. Most people say, I want to be a developer, not knowing how you get there, because there's something very cool about a site that is capitalized and turns into something much different and people live there and are employed there and it can really kickstart a neighborhood. So I can see why that would bring a level of satisfaction for sure.
2: It does. But you can imagine why I'm not a developer. Mm -hmm. Back to the urgency, right? So I had the good fortune of being an adjunct professor back at Columbia several years later. And I taught a class on the only thing I would know how to teach social impact real estate finance. That's pretty much all it could ever be. But when you're in business school, if you have a professor who doesn't have any pedagogical skills, which of course I don't, because explaining things to people and teaching them turns out is different. <laughs> then the upside for you as a student is you get a lot of mentorship. So I always had 40, 50 students each year who I was giving career advice to. And I would sometimes get students who would call me and they say, you know, I so, said, well, exactly what do you want to do after business school? They're like, I'm not sure if I want to be on the finance side or on the development side. I'm like, Okay, those are super different. One requires a lot of patience. You're going to be working on one project for 10 years, and you're going to go super deep. And then for someone like me with urgency, I get to be involved. And I'm very appreciative of the fact that so much has been done before I get involved. And then I get to get involved when all the pieces have come together but my job is to go back and do a history lesson and pick and pull it exactly how they came together, because I want to make sure it's all going to stand up going forward, right? Because some of the risks are still there, right? They had to deal with the fact that it was a nonconforming use 10 years ago. And I'm coming and saying, well, the title report says non nonconforming use, and I need to understand it. But I get it on yeah, speedy, right? Yeah. And so the hard work is really what the developers are doing and their teams, and I'm so appreciative of the fact that I get to come in for this one piece and live this one phase of the property. And hopefully you hold it for a while and you eventually sell it. But I think showing up with the bag of money is the easy part.
1: Yeah. It's really cool to hear. And to this day, and you said it was satisfying. You must be proud. It must be gratifying to go back and see these projects. I'm sure you don't get to New Orleans often, but if you do, I'm sure you drive by. And what a cool thing to be able to see that, that you created that change. And and there it is. And I'm sure to the stands and it's doing great.
2: Yeah. Well, again, I think it's easy to, I'm pretty sure in all those deals, I wasn't the butt for, mm-hmm. right? I just had the privilege of Very being cool. a part of it. Very so. cool.
0: Yeah, it's a great perspective. And I think all your developer friends and partners will appreciate the way you frame that too. So the battle scars that go into some of these projects that we help raise equity on, and then we help capitalize the project, the work before that is, is the real deal. Yeah. You know, There's a lot that goes into it. Yep. So Bridge, we're excited to talk about Bridge. And we mentioned earlier in the interview
1: that We were fortunate enough to do a a sizable transaction this summer with you all. We sold you a portfolio of six great assets, 1,722 units. And we said it earlier, you were an exemplary buyer. And the way that you approached your business plan was really, really interesting. So I'd love to hear, and I'm sure the listeners would as well, just a 30-second high-level on Bridge Investment Group and what your role is and what you've been up to. And then we can dive into some questions and, and go from there.
2: Great. Yeah. So Bridge Investment Group is a $50 billion real estate fund manager. We started about 25 years ago, really as an owner operator of multifamily. And in 2010, 2011, started raising beyond friends and family and started getting much more into kind of the fund management business. And that's one of the things that attracted me most to Bridge is the kind of bricks and sticks background, the bricks and sticks mindset, right? We're real estate people, right? Not just capital allocators. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just different. And so we now have multiple businesses. In fact, the last business that we've just purchased is not a real estate business. It's a secondaries business. So we're starting to diversify which is exciting. I hope eventually it'll get us into the secondaries real estate business. But multifamily has been the flagship. It's kind of where we started the business and we continue to grow that business a lot. We also have a debt business, a seniors business, office and industrial and a single family rental And some of that has been through acquisition of whether it's a team or a business. And so we're kind of all shapes and sizes real estate. We're not in life sciences. We're not in hospitality, and we haven't been in retail. And so while we've grown a tremendous amount over the last 12 plus years, we've really stuck to the knitting in terms of multifamily being really key. And in almost all of those businesses, I forgot to mention our OZ business where we do a lot of development. That's probably the one exception. And you're active
1: here in Boston, which we're excited about.
2: Absolutely. But one of the common threads in all the other businesses is being an owner-operator and being vertically integrated and kind of getting back to that culture. So that's a bit on bridge. I co-run our multifamily business, and I'm the CIO of our workforce funds, as you said, Tom. And so our multifamily business, we've been primarily focused in the Class B space. We have been primarily focused on garden-style suburban and we have almost 60,000 units under management now. So we're vertically integrated on the property management side, as I mentioned. And we started raising funds in 2010 of outside capital in the multifamily space. It was primarily Class B multifamily, a value-add strategy, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of been our bread and butter and we raised a few funds like that. And then in 2017, a number of our bank clients, because we're on the platforms at a lot of the private wealth banks, back to CRA, a few of the banks said, well, hold on a second. We've got this other group that needs to allocate capital to folks who need CRA credit. You're doing a bunch of the stuff that you're doing is really workforce housing. And we knew that, right? And they said, could you ring fence that stuff, take it out and have a separate fund strategy for it? So that we could invest in that because it's one of the nuances around getting CRA credit. And so in 2017, this is before I joined, Bridge launched its first dedicated workforce and affordable housing strategy, really focused on meeting the needs of what we call the missing middle. So folks who are earning less than 80 percent of AMI and providing affordable housing to them, and so we raised our first fund of that strategy in 2017. It was 600 million, and then we raised a second fund, uh, 1.7 billion, and are deploying out of that right now. And the workforce and affordable housing strategy at Bridge is really mostly a NOAA strategy, right? So buying naturally affordable housing, which means it's older stuff, right, and preserving it by investing in the any deferred maintenance, investing in the envelope and the bricks and sticks, and then investing in what we call beyond the four walls.
1: And I think that's a differentiator. We sat in a car for a day looking at this portfolio and I heard all about it. But I think that's what makes your fund different. And I'm really, I think everybody would love to hear about that part of the business and how you focus on not just the bricks and mortar, but the community, the people. And it goes back to your early days and all the experience you have. But I'm sure that's fulfilling work.
2: Yeah, well, it's one of the things that attracted me about Bridge, right? Because if you're doing transformative mixed-use development, there is a but-for. But if you're buying older properties, I think of it as it's a but-how, right? I mean, these are people's homes. And so there's a lot of folks who own Class B Multi. And Bridge, from way before when I joined, really understood that this is people's homes and that one of the ways to make the value proposition for residents in this space more appealing is to look at not just having safe and affordable homes, but providing services that help them in their lives. So we have at all of our workforce and affordable housing properties, a social and community programming. In most of our properties, that's like a bricks and sticks approach. So we have an actual community center that we will take a piece of the clubhouse or we'll take a unit and we'll renovate it. And it's usually a thousand square feet. And it's a place where we have a full-time resident coordinator and social services coordinator who will situate and provide services to our tenants. And I just had a call with our partner, long-term partner, Project Access a Not-for-Profit based in Southern California. Some of the founders of Bridge worked with them back in the day and we've been working with them for over 20 years and they have been amazing partners and helped us grow as our portfolio has grown and across the country launch into new markets with us. And we contract with them to hire and manage and provide these social services. So we have centers all over the country. We focus on people's financial wellness, their physical wellness, And we do a lot of after-school programs with kids. We were just having a conversation today about how do we flex our programs so that we can really meet the needs of our tenants depending on where they are and when they're available and things like that. So it's been a really important part of what we do. And it's an amenity. Class A amenities you're thinking about, you've got beer kegs and things like that. But what we're saying is, what are the real needs of our tenants? And how do we help, particularly in this time of high inflation, their share of wallet? go further. So we think it overall has led to stickier tenants.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I would imagine that creates community, creates great retention. It's got to have a bottom line effect, not just a social impact effect.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a both and strategy, Right. right? I mean, back to literally like jumping off a cliff when I left Goldman, I was like, oh, there's gonna be all this capital out there who wants to do all this good stuff. And there is, but in the world, there's a finite amount of concessionary capital. I mean, it's government capital and it's philanthropy. And by the way, both of those sources of capital have a lot of issues to address, Mm -hmm. right? So my philosophy that I've built over time, and it's very much in keeping with Bridges philosophy was, which was why it's been a great match for me personally, is that you can do well by doing good. And that if we can harness the power of the private sector to address and alleviate some problems, In my view, then that means that the precious public sector capital and concessionary capital can do the things that the private sector capital can't do. People say, well, why don't you guys fund homeless shelters? Well, they're not income generating properties. I'm not a magician, right? There's no math there that works. But if the private sector can be brought to bear to do things that make sense for private capital, I mean, we have clients who are pension funds. Do they care more about meeting the needs of someone's affordable housing? But they also have to care about meeting the needs of their constituents, right? The people who have worked hard for them in their organizations for a long period of time who then need to have a pension. So what we can do in finding that intersection is really important. And we do see that it affects the overall attractiveness of our communities.
0: Yeah. And for someone who's not in the multifamily business day to day, me and I love this discussion because we're going to send it right over to the students at the Corcoran Center at Boston College, the Joseph Corcoran Center for Real Estate and Urban Action. This is exactly what they're trying to teach these students about that there is an intersection here between the capitalist side of real estate and urban action, or sort of the double bottom line part of this. And you guys have found a way to make the math work. I think sometimes for people that aren't in the sector, they wonder how does that work from a cost of capital standpoint how do these deals pencil for you without just saying, hey, we're going to push rents as high as we can? And I think people are interested in that. And do you have to get buy-in at the fund level when you're out raising the money? Or does it work well enough that it sort of fits into the returns you're targeting?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a both-and strategy, right? We don't have capital that's coming to us that wants concessionary or can take concessionary returns, Right. right? And the backdrop of all of this is just a simple supply and demand problem. So, we're short by various estimates, about four and a half million units of housing in this country, okay? So we have a housing shortage, which means there's a lot of demand for the housing we do have. And that precious public sector capital I was talking about is and should be, as a taxpayer, I would agree with this, focused on the lowest of the low, right? The stuff that can't be income producing. People who don't have incomes at all, I'm just talking with respect to housing now, people who are making 30%, 40% of AMI right? Those rents are not high enough to support commercial returns in acquisitions Mm -hmm. or the development. Regardless
1: of how you finance them. Yeah. It just doesn't doesn't work.
2: It just doesn't work because the math isn't there. On the other end, all of the new supply that we've been developing is for the super high class A rents, right? Why? Because all the inputs are too expensive. The cost develop just to get entitlements, not to mention labor, materials, land. And so everything's been geared over the last 30, 40, 50 years towards class A supply. There's been some class B, but it's not a whole lot. And so what you have in the middle is this missing middle, right? No one's building housing for the workforce. So ultimately, by focusing on this segment, there's just a tremendous amount of demand. So the economics for our investors are really compelling if you just look at the supply-demand location, right? Dislocation. And it's also compelling from a risk-return perspective because when we're buying properties, we are doing some value-add. That's part of how we're generating returns. But this is stuff that was built in the 70s and the 80s. You can say it's value-add, but you can also say it's preservation because we have 4.5 million units short Right, everyone's going crazy right now about all the supply, and it's a fifty-year zenith in supply. But once all this supply comes in and gets absorbed, and overhang in certain markets is absorbed, we're back to having yeah. a still a big issue. It's right? particularly
1: right? acute here in Boston too. Yeah. And I'm sure you recognize this having diligence in the market. I'll give Jared Carpenter and your team a big shout out for his super due diligence. But you've studied it here in Boston. It feels as though we have a more acute housing shortage than elsewhere. Our supply pipeline, and we watch it pretty closely. 24, 25, there's some deliveries, but when you get further out and the financing environment today catches up, it's gonna be pretty dire, the deliveries on an annual basis. So you're absolutely right, it's hard to preserve, and it's all about preservation. That middle tier of housing, there's the bottom end and the top end, but what's in the middle? And that's the stuff that's really challenging to preserve if you don't have a strategy like yours, so.
2: So we're not going to be able to build our way out of the problem. We have to build new, but we also have to preserve. And so there's a lot of asset appreciation that can happen if you go in and you preserve the assets, right? And then the social services piece, right? What we're doing at the human level, at the community level, I think people understand that there's inherent value that we're creating. We hope that we'll have stickier tenants. We hope that we'll have people who understand the value we're providing for their rental dollar and that that will ultimately drive returns and value. I think in terms of talking to investors, right, when I think about our investors, we have amazing investors, all of whom have slightly different reasons for wanting to see some of them are just looking and saying, there's a huge shortage here. Over time, you're going to have greater rent growth. And you can't build this and you're buying it beyond replacement cost. And you're going in and maybe the sub that it's in doesn't support a value-add player coming in and taking 100% of the units from classics to fulls. If you do, you might be pioneering, a little riskier, right? I don't need to do that in our properties. Like I'm gonna say, okay, well, that's probably maybe over-renovating for the market, right? So I have to look at the math and get there a different way. The agencies help us, right? They have an affordability mandate. So there's obviously some advantages on the financing side. And it's just a different way of underwriting, but it's not concessionary returns. And we think it's really great risk adjusted returns for our investors.
0: Yeah. And for folks that aren't in the multi-business, what are you seeing on the agency side right now? You know, in this sort of, we're sitting here in late November of 23.
2: So the agencies have been obviously a huge, as they're expected to be, safety net, right, for the multifamily financing world. They're always a big part of our world just because of the affordability, because that's part of their mandate. But there's obviously a lot of talk in the broader commercial real estate world, people talking about there's no access to debt, not an issue for us. So the agencies are there. They're focused on their mandate. And we've had steady access to capital during this period of time. And I think that's part of their mission. So we're seeing really good liquidity there in the multifamily space and particularly in the workforce space.
1: It's great. You mentioned your investors and you're doing something, right? Because you're top 20 global fundraiser last year in real estate private equity by PERE. And I think I read something. You're retaining 70, 75% of your investors fund to fund. So kudos to you and the bridge team. You do a great job and clearly it's working. So we've talked for about an hour, a lot about business and work, and it's been a lot of fun. We'd love to end on a more personal Rachel note. So maybe a few minutes on you, your family, where you live. And I actually had an interesting story. When Rachel and I were touring this portfolio that we mentioned earlier, while in the car, she got a call that she couldn't flush away. She needed to take the call. It was her daughter calling, who had just received her first job offer post-college, which is actually really cool, being a father of a new daughter. I was tearing up as she was so proud and so excited to you conferenced your husband. And so we know that daughter and she's got a bleeding heart as well, I think, right? She's in the criminal justice space.
2: But. Yeah. So that's Emma. So, I mean, we became fast friends. That was definitely a moment I'll remember. Not because I didn't think she was going to get a job. I think I hung up with you. I was like, why am I so emotional? Why <laughs> is this such a big deal? I always knew she was going to get a job. She's graduated from college. She's well equipped but it was listening to her voice, right, about how excited she was about what she was doing. So, yep, I have Emma. She's a recent college grad from Cornell and she studied government. And is going down her own path. I think she thinks housing is cool, but is definitely focused on criminal justice reform. And she's working at a great law firm as a paralegal in New York and having an opportunity to get exposure to cases that have submission to them and also just the bricks and sticks of what she's doing, right? Right. And the P's and Q's. And so it's having a wonderful experience there and just moved into New York City out of my house, which makes her happy. (laughs) That's fun. I said it makes her happy. (laughs) (laughs) But living in New York or Boston or these places is so great when you're in your 20s. And I knew she was really excited when she had just moved into the city. And she called me on Monday night. It was midnight. And she said, Mom, I'm just leaving the office. And she said, I'm so excited. She's like, and I'm going to be home in 10 minutes. So that's a good thing. And then I have Talia, who's a senior in high school and has her own passion and mission about different things. And so soon... You'll be an empty soon. Don't say that. I was trying to come up with a euphemism for it. This is why my husband just got me a second puppy. So <laughs> love, love you, honey. Thanks for that. And then we'll get to spend more time out in Salt Lake.
1: Very cool. cool. So we talked about Salt Lake, a great place to visit. What's Rachel Diller's favorite place to visit in the world? What's your best trip? If you could go anywhere, where would you
2: go? I do love Salt Lake, but I got to say Jackson Hole is one of my favorite places. Yeah, I'd there. go to Jackson Hole and ski with my dad.
0: That's, That's cool. a good, really good answer. I think uh, anyone that goes to Jackson Hole in a lot of these towns, it is so majestic there. And that's what I say all the time. Like You pull the car over and just kind of take it in for a few minutes. And when you get exposure to the mountain towns in the West. Maybe it gets old. For me, when I've been there, it's just eye-opening. It
1: is. Have you been to Park City?
0: Have yeah. It Park City west,
1: yeah. Is, is one of my favorite places yeah, in the world. Really awesome. It's really special. Okay, Rachel, best live music concert of your life and maybe a recent live music experience
2: okay so i think the best live music experience i ever had was seeing csny at jones beach oh cool and i don't even remember what year it was it was a long time ago but if you've ever been to jones beach it's an amphitheater it's outside and when they played cathedral and i'm in the open sky and the stars, I just literally thought I had died and got to heaven. So that was like my favorite, wow. That's a good my answer. favorite concert. Yeah, it's
0: cool. I can hear in my mind because I think the harmonies in that music are so unbelievable. Spotify Unwrapped came out this week. I have it at the top of my list because the way they match up is so wild. Yeah. So I'm pinching myself thinking about you being there. That's cool. Yeah, it Good was awesome. answer.
2: Yeah. But recently I had the benefit of going to the sphere in Las Vegas. No way. Talk about a real estate. That is a like, major
1: bucket list right now. Oh
2: my gosh. And I saw you too, right? Which oh of my course gosh. has, yeah. you know, their residency. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. I, I,
0: that's on the list. People have just said it's blowing people away, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, my husband was saying it may have changed concert going. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, it's uh-huh. like Red Rocks, but
1: better and bigger and brighter and perfect.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love folk Tommy's music. Tommy's going to get I some hate
0: mail for the Red Rocks. I know, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Of, you know Red Rocks.
1: Yeah, nothing personal. On. Yeah. I've never even been to Red Rocks, so. You know, the high-tech great. Red Rocks. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah,
2: because that's what I was going to say. It's high-tech, right? Yeah. Like, I love Joni Mitchell. You yeah. know, like, yeah. I don't need a whole lot. And by the way, it's you too.
1: Right. They don't right.
2: need a whole lot. Yeah. But it was amazing. Yeah. And actually, Gotta we go. did a doubleheader the night before. It was my daughter's 22nd birthday. So my husband, my daughter, and I went. And if I say really what my favorite live concerts were recently, it's any concert. Both of my daughters are singers. so.
0: Oh, no way. Oh, cool.
2: That's, to me, just hearing them sing and, you oh, know, my daughter's an that's the best concert ever. But the night before we went to U2, we got to see Adele. Oh, my and, gosh. And, you know, what a stretch. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And watching my daughter, the daughter who was with me, watch Adele and basically hearing them sing together, That's, that was that's
0: pretty amazing. That's a mic drop
1: moment. That's Very awesome. Cool.
0: We love it when people share memories with their kids like that, because I think for everyone it resonates. And those are awesome experiences. When you can do it with your kids, they'll never forget it neither with you. So that's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Life's about experiences. So that's awesome.
1: awesome. That's awesome. Good answers. You've been so generous with your time. We had a blast working with you this summer. And Thank you for everything. You guys were
2: amazing. And our team loves you guys and really just can't thank you enough for giving us our entry into this market. When you enter a new market, you're so afraid of what you don't know and realizing you weren't working for us, right? You were working, of course, for your client, but you just were so generous and helpful. And to buy anything in 2023 was kind of scary. Mm -hmm. But I just was saying to a couple of people in-house today that I've had so much conviction about that portfolio. And you gave us a lot of confidence. And of course, we've worked with Harbor Group before, and they've been a great counterparty. We've sold things to them and bought things from them. And Having visited the properties today, I'm just so excited about what's happening in Boston. Everyone got really excited about, and listen, the Sunbelt is terrific. We do a lot of investing in the Sunbelt. When I said, oh, you know, a place like Boston, slow and steady, when you actually look at the numbers and you see there's been really great rent growth over here. Even if you take out the go-go years of 21 and 22, you have really solid rent growth. And the economy is diverse and growing and a lot of eds and meds and a lot of intellectual capital here. So
0: that supply demand imbalance is acute, As Tommy said, it's not really going anywhere. I think that speaking for the Newmark platform, we pride ourselves on and helping allocators and investors make their new entrants into different markets, whether it's a sector or geography. So it excites me to hear this little case study because you guys came in at scale, you know, at serious scale, and you guys are a big player, you know, 50 billion under management. But I love the story for you guys, for Bridge. I also love the story, Tommy, for your team in Newmark and our broader capital markets platform, because from my perspective, it's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah,
1: you made it easy. It's just like you're learning a new market, we're learning a new buyer and advising our client. And you lived up to every expectation, and we appreciate it's the first of many. We're sure, so more to do in 2024. But thank you again for the time. You're the best. We had a great time talking, and we'll see you soon.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks,
0: Rachel.